Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast and the Class. Um, has, it's uh, special to have everyone here with us. Special to have everyone here with us, especially my childhood friend, Rabbi Meyer Safti. Uh, this is a, a person who has schooled me many of the time on the basketball court, and, and yet uh, he's still welcome in the synagogue anytime, even though it causes me pay, painful flashbacks. The therapy will get me through it. Breakfast in class today is dedicated loving memory of Marcy's mother, Arlene Pollack, Alea Shalom, Lilu Nishmat, Chanabat Sarah, sponsored by Marcy and Stephen Feldman. And as well, breakfast in the class is sponsored by our dear friend Stephen Rappaport in honor of Rabbi Shlomo Farhi, Rabbi Ariel Mizrahi, Hazan Shmuel Levi, and Haron Shochet. Hazaku Baruch. Um, so, I'm not sure if that one is involved as well, but we'll say it anyway. As well, in loving memory of Salim Azer, Allah Shalom, Lilun Shmat Salim Yosef Ben Sarah, sponsored by Daisy Azer, Sandy, and Haron Shochet. My friends, the Torah tells us, after the death of the two sons of Aharon, when they brought into the Beit HaMikdash, they came before God, they came before God. And we've already discussed many uh, I- I- versions of this idea. Um, the Gemara alternatively says that one of the mistakes that they made was that they, uh, what's it called? That they, they came into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, Hashem. Alternatively, that they, never, that they decided that they were not going to get married. Alternatively, the idea was that they came into the Beit HaMikdash and already too inebriated uh, to be there halachically. Alternatively, that they were posek halachalaf nirabam. Alternatively, because um, they, what's it called, they uh, brought a, a korban that they were not commanded. Now, it's a super interesting thing, my friends, because what's clear in the pasuk, absolutely laser-like clear, it says bekorvatam, when they brought, excuse me, hakrivam, esh zara, they brought a fire, asheh lo that was not commanded. So, bekorvatam lifne Hashem, they came close to God. It's already an interpretation to say, that this idea means that they came to the Kodesh HaKodeshim. Because it just says that they came before God. We're interpreting that and we're saying it means, we're making dirasha that it means that they came to the Kodesh HaKodeshim. But what does it say verbatim in the Pasuk? They brought a foreign fire and what was foreign about that fire? Asheloh Sivad, that it was not commanded. So this we know, that they brought a Korban that was not commanded. That, according to all opinions, that's clear in the Pasuk. So my friends, what is this idea? What was this concept of them bringing a foreign fire which was not commanded? Now on the surface it means that they brought a korban and there was, they put fire on the korban and Borei Olam wanted something else. But the point here is wider than the expression that they used. It isn't just about the korban. It's teaching us a much deeper lesson. There was a, 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 a jeweler who lived here in, I think it was in, in New York somewhere. And this guy had the best and the most expensive pieces that you could ever hope to have. He had, you know, pieces that the queens and kings would have squabbled and would have fought over in his safes. Had that, you know, you have things of such great, uh, of, of such great value, it becomes very, very difficult to trust anybody. And as time went on and his business grew, not only did it affect uh, the way he did and ran the security of his business and his home, but it also affected uh, him on a personal level. And he couldn't, he felt like when he dated people, when he went out, you know, on dates also, that he was always wondering, did the girl like him because, you know, he was wealthy or did she like him for him? 
Or did she think she was going to get the biggest ring ever seen by any woman? You know, he always was wondering. So had that wound up at a certain age already, very successful in his business, with pieces of unimaginable value uh, in his safes, in his office, and in his home. <clears throat> and there was no one other than him to be able to be home, to be able to be present, uh, you know, to guard those jewels. Anyway, he goes on a business trip, and every time he would go on a trip, he would, he would ask a nephew of his to come and, uh, and set up shop in a little security booth outside the house. He, his son, his uh, nephew was armed, he was a security guard, um, and he would watch over the house with all of the treasures locked away in the safes uh, in the home uh, while his uncle was on these trips to the mines, to all these places to go and buy and acquire these jewels uh, to bring back to New York City or to New York. Well, one command, one thing was uh, made absolutely clear every time he went away. He said, listen, there's no one home. You're in charge. You're the security guard. You don't let anyone in the house. No one. Whatever the reason they have, whatever excuse they give you, you never let anyone in my house. Is this clear? If there's a, a situation or something comes up and they tell you they need to get in, so you call me. Okay, but without my approval, no one comes in for any reason. Okay, one year, the guy goes on a business trip and everything is always working smoothly. He's always has the, you know, they've got the system down. Even if they need to install sprinklers, he calls the, the guy, the guy says, I never called. I never, you know, I never set this up. You know, tell them to reschedule when I'm back. They always were able to work it out. One time, the guy says to his nephew, he says, listen, this one time, I happen to be traveling to a place that I know already from now does not have any cell service. I'm, there's no way you're going to be able to reach me. So I just want to reiterate, you know, what we always talk about. No one, for no reason, gets in the house. Okay, simple enough, right? There's not really nuance there. A couple days go by in the trip. The man's telling people, no, no, they can't come, blah, 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 quiet. Till one day... Uh, a big truck pulls up in front of the house and these guys get off of the truck uh, two big burly guys they start unloading from the truck uh, a, a big couch anyway they pick up the couch they walk up the thing it's a beautiful couch like a blue leather you know very beautifully designed um, and they come to the front door and they said sir where would you like the couch he says what do you mean where would I like the couch they said well you know the owner of this house, they gave the name, he, they said he, he ordered this couch. He told us that, you know, we, it's a very uh, high line item, very difficult to get. And uh, it's been on back order already for six months. And, uh, you know, we finally, they, they made it in Italy and it was delivered today. So we wanted to get it here as soon as possible. The guy realizes he can't call, he can't call his uncle. So he says, listen, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm under strict instructions. No one. For no reason, no one's allowed in. The guys tell him, okay, no problem, 100%. Just sign on this piece of paper that you're waiving your right to the couch. There's a long line of customers waiting for all for goods. You know, it'll be another six months before he gets his, uh, his uh, furniture delivered. Just sign right here. Now the guy feels like, Uli, if I'm going to sign, it's going to be my fault that he lost the object. He's going to be upset at me. So he's thinking, he says, you know what? He says... Okay, fine. You're just putting it down. Just put it down in the living room right inside the door. He walks in with them. They unload the couch. They put the couch into the living room 
Right here, right here. They show you shuts the door, locks the door. Baruch Hashem. Okay. He watched every second. No problems. He sits down. Two days later, um, again a truck pulls up. Again, these two guys get out. They come to him and they say, "Look, we're very sorry." They say we delivered the the wrong couch. The guy ordered instead of the blue one, he ordered the beige one. This is the beige one. So we just need to switch them. The guy says, okay, no problem. He has his gun at the ready. Maybe this is a little bit weird. They walk in, they take the blue couch out, they put the beige couch in. They lock the door, have a great day. The uncle comes home by the end of the week. He walks inside the house and he starts screaming. He runs outside, his nephew says, what's the matter? He says, all the safes are broken into. Everything I own, stolen. What happened? They hit a guy in the couch. They carried him in, and right in front of the guy's eyes, with his hand on the gun, they put the couch down on the floor. The guy cut himself out the bottom of the couch, right? What's it called? Zipped himself out of the couch. Went in, had two full days to work on the safes. You know, the Hadad's probably eating from the guy's fridge while he's doing it, okay? Stole everything the guy owned, came back, zipped himself with all the goods back in the couch, and they carried him out and swapped it. Now he has a beautiful beige couch and no jewels, okay? My friends, the idea of Bikur Vatam, when they came in front of God and they brought Esh Zarah, they brought a foreign fire, Asherlo Siva, that God did not command, okay? The problem is not the Korban that they brought in. Just as if this guard had let Uber Eats bring something in the house, it would not be the fact that he let Uber Eats in the house. It would be the fact that if he allowed anyone in the house, that's breaking the most basic principle that his master had asked him, that his, his uncle had asked him to keep. And it was exactly for this reason that God, that this man actually asks us in the Torah. He says, listen to what I tell you. There's an avon in Torah called bal tosif. Lo tosifu velo mimenu. Don't add to my Torah and don't take anything away. So everyone asks, don't take anything away. Okay, now you, I want to go work on Shabbat, but take away Shabbat's a problem. If I now want to, on top of Shabbat, I want to also keep Sunday, you know, I'm not going to turn on lights on Sunday. I'm not going to, I'm going to go to shul on Sunday. I'm going to pray for two hours on Sunday morning. Problem or not? What do you mean? I'm just doing more. Doing more is the same as doing less. Because what you're saying is that Judaism is not a set of laws and guidelines that God gives that God quantifies, that God uh, allows, but rather that me, with my human mind, that I get to understand, and I get to apply, and I get to decide when and where to implement it. If you look in the Torah, every single mistake that was made by the great Sadiqim in the Torah, <coughs> whatever the mistake is, we don't even understand them because they're way out of our realm. But the tiny mistakes, according to their level, that they did were invariably because of this. Our rabbis tell us, why did Adam that he shown eat from the tree? Because the minute he understood that eating from the tree would bring him a yetzahara, Adam Arishon said, if the point of being in this world is to be challenged and to fulfill God's will, surely having a yetzahara inside of me will allow me more challenges, which will allow me to have... Uh, more mitzvot, fantastic, let me eat from the Esadat. That idea, says Ramban, en dat, ve'en chokhmah, ve'en tivunah neged Hashem. If God told you something, 
Just flipping, listen to the instructions. Right? Don't think that you're so smart that you're going to outsmart Hashem and know exactly what He wants and then try it. Now, the reason why I say this is because, twofold. Number one, it illustrates and it communicates the power and the importance of understanding halakha. People kind of feel like, eh, I'll do this, I'll do that, you know what, I'll double down over here. There's a beautiful pshat in the Mishnah and Avot. The Mishnah and Avot says, Al amadot. Anyone know what that means? Careful, don't, don't go around, don't be omed, think, you know what, I think I owe this year around $20,000 in, uh, in Maaser. I'll give around 20, it's probably around 20 grand. Don't, don't estimate. So many of the Mepharshim say, you know why you shouldn't estimate your Maaser? Because what happens if you owe 25? A person not giving Maaser is stealing money from Aniim. That money does not belong to you. It was given to the Aniim. You just, you're just holding it for them. Keeping that money, not giving Maaser, stealing money from the poor. That's what you're doing. Okay? Now if that's the case, my friends, this is unbelievable. So you look at this, the, what the Mishnah is telling you is don't estimate or guesstimate because what if you're off and you didn't give enough? But if you look at the commentators, you'll see another interpretation also emerging. Not just because maybe you won't give enough. Even if, you know what you say? I think it's 20, it might be 25, you know what? I'll give 30. Don't do that. Don't guesstimate. Why? If I'm guesstimating, but I'm overguesstimating. I'm overcompensating in my amada, in my, uh, in my uh, estimation. Still not a problem. Why? Because the Torah told you to give 10%. Go give 10%. Count the money. Figure out how much you owe. That's how much you give. You want to give more money after you gave Maaser, no problem. But Maaser is not round about 10. It's 10%. Think about this for one minute. Would you ever do that with your taxes? You don't do that. You have an accountant counts every penny. You bring in every ex exemption. You figure out how to expense the trip to there. You're bringing receipts for $8 in a cab. Well, all of a sudden, when it comes to Uncle Sam, we have one way, and when it comes to Uncle Hashem, we have another way? The problem is that we're very nervous with tax. Because if, God forbid, we get it wrong, who knows what will happen? But Borei Olam, by the way, has a much better track record than the IRS. Because as we say on Yom HaKippurim, With the IRS, there's an amount of time after which they can't come get you. If they let it slide for too long, they can't come get you. Some people they'll audit, some people they won't. If it doesn't look fishy, they might not audit you. So maybe you got away with some shenanigans, but actually they didn't know the difference. Doesn't forget. And there's nothing he doesn't see. And also, when you try and say that this is a business expense, Borei Olam knows how much business you did and how much vacation you had. Okay? So it's important to understand that there's an exactitude in, in Yahadut that means that you take something seriously. Okay? The great mistakes that happened was because people decided, you know what? I think this. I think that. We need an intermediary. Let's build a golden calf. And what does that wind up being? Abu Dazara, okay? Uh, Adam Arishon, same problem. Moshe Rabbeinu hitting the rock. Why does Moshe hit the rock? 
we'll discuss many reasons when the time comes. But one of the, the ideas that brought down and communicated in the Sifarim is that Moshe was worried about the Jewish people. He knew that if he spoke to the rock and the rock listened, it would be a terrible castigation. It would be a terrible, uh, would cast the Jews in a terrible light. Here are these people that got everything from God and when you tell them to do something, they don't listen. And here's this rock that gets nothing. All of this is a rock. It's not special. It's not chosen. And you just speak to it and it listens. It follows the rules. Moshe said, you know what? If I hit the rock and it responds, then the rock will be the same as the Jews. They also listen when you hit them. You get this? The Ma'anchem. One of the opinions in the Ma'anchem. So why is Moshe punished? Sounds like a very religious, very charitable, a very beautiful explanation. Yes. But it's not what God said. It's not what God said. Adding things, introducing things, making things up, deciding that we're going to have now a Kiddush meditation. You know, so nice. Yes, if it's within the boundaries of halakha. If it isn't. I know someone that used to get people during the Kiddush, he would start a whole discussion going during the Kiddush. Now, again, is the idea a nice idea? Oh, wow, it's so nice. Get people thinking about Shabbat. Get people, wonderful. Do it after the Kiddush. You did it in the Kiddush, it's a hefsek. So you'd make the Berakha, and then before you would drink from the wine, everyone would hold their cup, and they would all give toasts. After the Berakha of Kiddush, before they drank. Rohi, take a sip, then say whatever you like. But you understand the point? This idea that we could introduce new things, and we think that they're so nice. The big challenge that we have today is that something that Rabbi, actually Rabbi Mizrahi said beautifully a few weeks ago. He said, why is it that the Gidolim have something called Da'at Torah? Which means that you could ask their opinion on something and they give you the opinion of the Torah. Do you remember he said this by Seudash Lishi? So you want to know where to send your kids to school. You want to know if someone's an appropriate person to marriage. I'm not talking about when someone says, oh yeah, her name is Chana and the Gematria is 79 and uh, minus your name and then therefore, and then they tell you, this is the girl you should marry. Or I have another girl you should marry. Oh, what's her name? It's the perfect Gematria. Her name is Rufke Sprinzel, Genendel, Bendel, right? Making up who you're going to marry based on a Gematria is pure insanity. It is insanity of the highest order, okay? But at the same time, I just want, I want to make this clear. I want to make this clear, <clears throat> right? We have to act and do everything as best we can to do the proper hishtadlut. What's proper hishtadlut in getting married? Not asking about the numerical value of a name, but checking into the person's character, seeing it, seeing what they're like, seeing how they treat mitzvot, seeing how they treat human beings, watching the way they interact with the, with the waiter on a date. Did they show kavod habiriyot? How did they act? Did they say berkat amazon? Or did you have to tell them to say berkat amazon? Where are, you, where are they at? Where are you at? These are incredibly important things in figuring this out, okay? But my friends, <laughs> my friends, you know, if as an example, if as an example a person is trying to understand and to do things that move along with halakha, no problem. But a da Torah, Rabbi will tell you, I think this is a very good girl for you. Why? You've just explained to me her personality. You've explained to me what she's like. You've explained to me the issues that you think you might encounter. But do I think as a great rabbi, I don't mean I, I'm not a great rabbi, but if you were to go to a great rabbi and he would tell you, you know, listen, I see all the things here in front of me. This, I think, is a good idea. And even though there might be some challenges, it seems to me that within your personality traits, within your ability to overcome, I think it will be a good, this is a good shidduch. That's Da'at Torah. What makes the wisdom, the words of the rabbi holy, not because the rabbi said them, 
but because the rabbi's head is full only of Torah. So therefore, when he gives you an opinion, whose opinion is he giving you? He's giving you the opinion that is not from the word of God. When you go to a Sadiq and the Sadiq tells you something, it's not that Rav Chaim Kanievsky is a Navi. We don't have prophecy anymore. It's just that he's communicating to you and every word is weighed and every word is seen through the prism of the understanding of Torah. What happens when you have Torah in here and you have classical psychology and you have self-help and you have this and you have society and culture and art and music and this and that and that. How do I know where that's coming from, your opinion? It could be coming from anything that's stored in your brain. You got that? If that's the case, we start to understand why it is so dangerous and insidious for people to start introducing new things into Judaism. My friends, when you see sometimes people fighting and they're talking online about the changing and the evolution of Judaism, what they're talking about is not the evolution of Judaism, but the devolution of Judaism, the dissolution of Judaism, the destruction of Judaism. If we feel that Judaism has to and must change, then what we're talking about is not God's word. We're talking about occasionally God's word so long as it meets with my approval. That is the world that we live in today. And oftentimes you hear this idea, it has to change, it must change. What do you, who, who, it's not that you're not the arbiter of what it must do. It is God's word. You want to start your own religion that you decide how it operates and what the laws are and what the parameters are and when you feel like emotionally or spiritually things should, you know, take a right turn or a left turn, no problem. Just call that Farchiism. Don't call it Judaism. That's something else. That's untouchable. And that's what it means. They came in front of God. But as they came in front of God, attempting to connect to God, what did they do? They brought Esh Zara, a foreign fire. What made it foreign? Their intentions were pure. They were tzaddikim. The korban was holy. Everything was beautiful and holy about it. You know what made it? A dastardly act that was punished uh, with the highest power of the law, asher lo siva. This was not commanded. Hashem said, I didn't ask for this. And that was enough of a reason for it not to be part of the system that we call Judaism. Asher lo siva. May God bless us always to be uh, strong in the headwinds. And I must say, every concept of adaptation ignores the historical precedent. Every nation, every culture that attempted to adapt and change based on where it was, every culture is dissolved and gone. The culture that has managed to last for three and a half thousand, for four thousand years, it might have a little bit more wisdom than some woke guy who just gave some sort of diatribe on Instagram or on Snapchat or on Twitch, or on wherever the heck the guy decided to put his platform. And I'm not talking about any one person. I'm just saying, recognize, where does this guy's wisdom come from? What is the track record of a religion that he is espousing? How do we know that that works? We don't. You just thought of it this morning, okay? You didn't think of the ramifications. You didn't think of what it's gonna be like. 
But Borei Olam, in creating Judaism in the way that it is, with all the elements that challenge our understanding, with all the, and there are many that we don't understand, things that we don't understand. By the way, even things that you might not agree with in your current culturally uh, you know, uh, um, uh, influenced mind. Great, no problem. But you know what? Cultural norms, they change all the time. But spiritual realities, those are things that cannot move. And because that is the case, they have survived the test of time. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen, amen.